This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hi, I'm Michael Knott. I'm the CFO of EQ Office, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 529. Thought Leader listeners, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Ashish Parikh, CFO of Hersha Hospitality Trust. Hersha today operates nearly 130 hotels across the United States. Ashish was there from the very early days and has spent 20 years inside the business helping build and architect its finance function. We speak to Ashish about the world of Hersha after these words from our sponsor. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful.com at planful.com. Hello, we're speaking to Ashish Parikh, CFO of Hersha Hospitality Trust, a New York Stock Exchange listed real estate investment trust focused on hotels and resorts. Ashish, welcome. Thanks. Great to be here, Jack. Ashish, we're going to begin where we always do, which is just to ask our guests to look backwards for us. And tell us a little bit about those experiences, those uh, early experiences perhaps, that uh, prepared you for a finance leadership role. What comes to mind for you? Well, I think what comes to mind is that I did switch gears. You know, I started with Arthur Young out of college, out of the University of Massachusetts, and uh, my goal was to be a CPA. It really was not to 
become a finance professional. And shortly after I joined Arthur Young, they merged with Ernst & Winnie, uh, became Ernst & Young, you know, which was a path from going from the big eight to the now the big four. Many of the firms merged. And I, um, I learned a lot. I did it for three years, but I, during those three years, I realized that it was a little more backwards looking, you know, more reporting than actually making changes. And I decided to, to make a change and joined a company called Tyco International. Now, Tyco is probably best known for the wrong reasons because of our CEO, Dennis Kozlowski, and our CFO, Mark Schwartz, who were both unfortunately went to jail and uh, were, you know, the poster child for excess and greed. Now, that was after I left, but I had a terrific couple of years at uh, Tyco International, was in their financial consulting and um, financial reporting group and really internal audit as well, and went all over the world, saw different subsidiaries, saw that we were doing great acquisitions and really growing the company. And that's what really drove me to go back to business school. And, and I went to NYU and focused on finance for my MBA because I felt like that was the path for me. It, it seemed much more exciting. There was a lot of, um, a lot of things that I just felt I was more engaged on. And it really, for the first time, you know, since I had left college, I said, I'm actually interested to go to work. And I think that's when the light bulb went off. And you've been at uh, Hersha Hospitality Trust, uh, I believe, nearly uh, 20 years now. So it's interesting. We have had uh, quite a few CFO guests who have built their career uh, inside a single company as you have. But it's not as common as it was certainly 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago, perhaps. But tell us how you, you first arrived there. Yeah, absolutely. So after business school, I went into investment banking with uh, Fleet Bank in Boston. And um, I did that for several years, and I was in their mergers and acquisitions group and loan syndications group, and really enjoyed the work. I had no desire to leave. Uh, things were going well. Boston's my hometown. It's, it's a great little city. And... You know, out of the blue one day, one of my uncles called me and he said, listen, we are a very small business. It's based in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We did a small, minuscule public offering. It was $13 million. And, um, you know, we're looking for a CFO. And I said to him, well, let me think about it. Let me see who I know. And he said, no, I, I think you missed the point. We're, we're looking for someone like you, someone that has the background, someone that's young. And 99 out of 100 days, I would have laughed. I would have said, really? Like, you know, I don't know anything about hotel REITs. I don't know anything about the lodging business. I'm, I'm more of a finance professional, but, you know, focused on tech and manufacturing. Well, for some reason that day, I said, you know, why don't I fly down and just meet with, you know, the, the – the part, your partners, and to see what their vision is for this company. So I flew down to Philadelphia and, and met some of the partners and, you know, had a really great feel for here's a company that's, you know, a group of individuals that are really, have grown this from nothing. It's 
sort of have lived in these roadside motels for 10 years and grown a company that at that time was probably worth $100 million, very entrepreneurial, um, very forward-looking. And I said to myself, you know, this is kind of crazy, but maybe there is something here. Maybe this is, you know, the entrepreneurial type of venture that could be right for me. So I you know, went back and talked to my wife, and she was super supportive. And she said, you know, if it's something you really want to do, this is this may be the time to do it. And um, I, I, looking back, it was, you know, I can't believe I pitched it to my wife. I said, well, basically, it's Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, so we're leaving Boston. It's, we'd be working in, I'd be working in the back of a Holiday Inn in a windowless office, and uh, yeah, that's what I'd be doing. And she's like, well, just promise me one thing that you'll you'll at least commit to it, and you'll do it for three or four years, even if you don't love it, because unless you do that, you'll never really give it a full shot. You'll kind of go there for a year or two and say, that thanks, that was that was fun, but you know, I'm back to doing something else. And then here I am, 20 years later, where the company's enterprise value is about two and a half billion, with a you know billion dollar equity market cap, and um, we have a portfolio of 48 hotels that we own either outright or in joint ventures, and our affiliate management company runs about 130 different hotels for various owners like Blackstone and Dean and Startled Capital and Hershoff's Salary Trust kind of all over the country. So it's it's been a great 20-year run, but I always say it's, it's nothing, not too many things are kind of overnight successes. You know, this is a 20-year overnight success. When you arrived there, were you stepping into uh, the finance leadership role or was it uh, organizationally a little different? It was very different, Jack. You know, this the company was not structured to be a public company at that time. I mean, it was very much an entrepreneurial, you know, bootstrap equity, very loose control, you know, very decentralized central reporting system. So it really came down to coming in at, you know, I wouldn't want to say the ground ground level, but very close to it. When did Hirsch uh, Hospitality uh, go public? Uh, Hershey Hospitality went public in uh, 1999. So we just celebrated our 20th anniversary. Um, we went public in January of 99, and I joined the company in April of 1999. Is there like a headcount number you can share with us when you entered the firm? How Here's how many employees it was, and here's how many we have today. Yeah, well, absolutely. So for Hershey Hospitality Trust, uh, when I joined, it's pretty easy because I was employee one, and I was the only employee. Um, <laughs> so today we have, in the trust itself, we have about 50 people. In the management company, there's about 7,000 people. Outstanding. So you saw this company rise around you and grow around you, um, uh, allowing you the opportunity to participate. And I have to believe uh, you architected, perhaps, the, the finance function in many ways. Um, and participated in, in uh, some of its uh, larger deals along the way, no question. Um, am I stating this correctly? Yeah, no, you, that is accurate. And, you know, certainly I had a great team of people around me, and I've been able to recruit some terrific accounting and finance professionals to help me out 
sure, you know, this was very much a ground-up venture, and in many ways, you know, I've, I've been involved in every large deal. So tell us uh, about the business today and uh, how the uh, perhaps how the business model has really had to evolve over time. Absolutely. So the business model when we first went public was very different. It was, you know, there isn't anyone focused on more of the mid-scale hotel segment, economy scale hotel segment in suburban markets and tertiary markets all over the Northeast and Southeast that has institutionalized the business. And that was our, our goal was really to own those type of hotels, own many of them, and own them more in secondary and tertiary markets. But about three or four years after joining this company and with our CEO, Jay Shaw, and our COO, Neil Shaw, who are brothers of, of and are the sons of the founding partners of Hersha, um, Hatsu, their dad, and Hersha, their mom, the company is named after their mom. Um, you know, the three of us really looked at this and said, in order to grow, in order to get the market's attention, you know, the vision was, let's be in first-ring suburbs and central businesses. Let's buy properties that can generate strong, sustainable cash flows, but also have very good sustainable real estate values and have the opportunity to appreciate um, from a real estate standpoint because they're in markets that are high barriers to entry. There's a lot of demand generators, whether it's leisure, business, group, you know, multiple demand generators. And that was the focal point. That was the strategy that we had laid out. But with all strategies, it's incremental. You don't go from owning, you know, low-end, mid-scale hotels to owning five-star resorts overnight. And what we did was we sold a lot of the mid-scale economy hotels and started moving more into the first-ring suburbs. After that, we sold a lot of those hotels and then moved into markets, which we're currently in, such as Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Washington, Miami, L.A., Silicon Valley. But the progression was, you know, incremental. It wasn't one day we gave up on the strategy and immediately started going to what we own today. Because you have to prove yourself in the capital markets. You have to prove yourself with the investors that you can move upscale, that you can own better hotels, that you can run these hotels better than the last owner, and in generate incremental value and build up that credibility to go into more profitable segments and more high-end hotels. Over time, and, and, and again, 20 years is quite some time, you, you probably have adopted different uh, technology infrastructure over time. I mean, the web uh, certainly matured during this time. How you uh, market your hotels, how you uh, operate them. Uh, has probably changed dramatically. Um, wondering how you get that visibility yourself into the business, and what are uh, the numbers that you're, as a finance leader, what are you paying attention to? What are the metrics or what are the numbers you're looking at regularly? Yeah, absolutely. Look, when, we sh when I first started, as you, as you know, nothing was web-based. Um, none of us had smartphones in our pockets, right? We may have had a cell phone, but 
certainly not the technology we have today. We, you know, at any given point in the day or night, we can look up what the hotels did the day before, how they're forecasted to run compared to budget, you know, which hotels are doing better, which hotels are doing worse. And the difficulty in all of this is parsing through the data. I think for a CFO today, there is so much data that you can look at, but you really have to focus on a few metrics. And I, the metric that I focus on the most day to day is how are we doing from an EBITDA generation compared to our forecast? You know, we spend a lot of time forecasting. We spend a lot of time looking at budgets, but what I find out in business in general is people spend a lot of time, but then the minute the quarter or the year starts, those forecasts are sort of forgotten. And what we have tried to do as a discipline is if something is trending off forecast, then immediately we need to spend more time on it because this is a day-to-day business. You know, once, if you own office buildings, you have long-term leases, 10-year, 20-year leases. This business, the leases last one night. And if you miss a night, if you don't get the strategy correctly, you never get it back. So our whole business is based on reacting quickly and having information that we can be data-driven and make the right decision. Um, For me, it's EBITDA per hotel versus forecast is what I look at the most. Yeah, you know, this is uh, interesting. I think so many finance leaders are – wrestling with this same challenge, uh, which, as you described, um, you know, when a forecast is sort of regularly misfiring, you've got to spend more time on it. I'm curious, does that mean adopting new tools to better forecast? Does that mean having more meetings? Does that mean collaborating with uh, sales or whoever more closely? You know, what is it? When you spend more time on something, you're trying to fix it. What does it demand that you do differently? I think what it demands is that you do differently is really that you get people that are on the ground involved in the process. A lot of times the forecasts are really top down. It's someone that says, I need you to hit X percent growth. Here's your forecast. And you'll have your salespeople and your general managers all nod along and say, yes, we can do this. But really, there's no buy-in at that point. The, the forecast, what we realize is, has to come from people that are doing it day-to-day, the on-the-ground personnel, the sales teams, the general managers. And then it needs to be one that they own and that they believe in and that they're incentivized to hit the forecast and to exceed it. Right? Like, without that you're creating a disincentive because all of us can sit here and say, you should just do X percent growth every quarter, every year. And we all know that's just not possible. You know, in an economy that we're in a very mature world, you know, most things grow at, you know, 2%, 3%. And this is about gaining market share, about beating your competitors, and finding ways that you can differentiate yourself. And you cannot have blanket forecasts for continuous growth on every given day and every given quarter. 
there are going to be quarters that are better than other quarters because of just market dynamics. There was a better year last year compared to this year. There's, you know, there, maybe there was more groups in town. Maybe there was more leisure activities. It could be as little as maybe the weather situation was better if you're in a resort market. But unless you get the people involved on the ground and you give them free reign and then you oversee it and you really push them to a point where you're all in sync, what I find is that whole process is really, it does, for lack of a better term, it becomes a waste of time and it's disincentivizing to the people that are supposed to be motivated to hit those forecasts. Curious if over time you have sought to make certain numbers more visible to a broader part of the organization, um, understanding that that visibility would change habits or make people prioritize differently. Um, does anything come to mind? Is there? Is there? A, and again, I, I, I like the way you you emphasized how it was a ipeta per hotel. You you wanted to get there. In order to get there, I'm. I, I'm wondering whether you had to educate people and make them better understand why this number was going to create a healthier uh, company overall. Well, uh, anything? Am I, am I uh, illustrating this correctly? You know, Jack, it, it's absolutely you are because I think people people always look at in the lodging industry RevPoc, which is revenue per available room. That's the most utilized metric in this industry. Um, it's a combination of, you know, how much occupancy you have multiplied by your average daily rate is your revenue per available room. I've tried to, over my time here, really get people to focus on, well, of course you have to have top-line growth. You have to have RevPog growth. Without that, nothing really works. But don't use that as the only focus point because you could grow to your top line by 5%. But unless there's expense controls, unless there's ways to mitigate, you know, increases in labor, increases in food costs, how much is real? How much of that extra revenue is dropping down and flowing through to the EBITDA line? Because if none of it is, then all of that effort you spent to drive your top line is for waste, is for not. You really. I've tried to get people to say, look, of course you have to focus on top line, but at the end of the day, what pays the bills, what returns cash to shareholders in the form of dividends, what allows us to generate more free cash flow is the EBITDA line and not revenues and not RevPog growth. We always like to ask uh, what we refer to really as a signature question for us, which is when I ask for a finance strategic moment update. During the course of your career, there was a time, given your visibility into those numbers, that you responded and you modified how you were doing something or you avoided a, a risk, pursued an opportunity, whatever it may have been. Does anything come to mind when I ask for a finance strategic moment? I think that, you know, I'd have to go back to the great financial crisis where there was a finance moment I had the week after Lehman Brothers failed, where I actually pulled all of the top-line numbers for the hotels. And it was the first time in my life I said, well, I, something is just drastically wrong with our accounting system because these numbers just don't make sense. 
you know, they, we've never seen drop this precipitously, this quickly. And that was one of the hardest decisions because we had never cut our dividend up to that point. So from 1999 to 2009, we had been a very consistent dividend payer and the, one of the highest dividend payers in the lodging REIT world. But I think that's when you look at forward booking, you look at what's happening, and you have to make a very difficult decision. And you know, we probably cut our dividend at that time by 70% because we just looked, I looked at it and I said, it's more important to batten down the hatches, to make sure that we don't violate any of our debt covenants, to make sure that this company's on sound footing for the long term. And of course, the shareholders aren't going to like their dividends being cut 75%, but it was the right move. And it's something that, you know, you can't let Wall Street and you can't let your investors' sentiment for that day drive your decision-making. There are times when you have to call it the way you see it, and, you know, I'm, I'm happy that we did because it would have been very challenging to continue to pay that type of dividend, and I'm sure we would have violated some type of cash flow debt covenant. When we come back, CFO Ashish Parikh enters the mentoring round. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. We're going to jump to our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire and mentor future finance leaders. What is it that's exciting you today? about finance and business? I think what's exciting today is that, for me at least, I view that companies that can build a great culture, that can have a great team, there are so many different ways that we look at the hospitality business. People are, this is a, this is a, segment of the real estate industry that people continue to want to utilize. Um, you know, you can look at retail, you can look at office, and I don't know what the future of malls is or department stores or really, you know, big office buildings going into the future. But when I look at hospitality and I look at where we're going, Every age cohort, whether it's Gen Ys, Millennials, Baby Boomers, everybody is interested in experiences and everybody's interested in travel. And our goal in the finance field here is to say, look, we have a great organization. How do we continue to grow this organization but generate return from places in the hotel that we never used to before? 
you know, like what can we offer in special experiences that can generate returns for our shareholders? And instead of just looking at number crunching, to really look at what's happening in the world and trying to incorporate that with our operations team and really using technology, whether it's social media, whether it's, you know, overall revenue management systems to drive returns. I think it's it's exciting in that way. You mentioned culture. I, I, I uh, thought about this earlier, but I thought I'd wait to our mentoring round to ask you. Having worked at Tyco, again, some of the controversy there and the uh, – uh, challenges happened uh, what, uh, almost seven years after you left. But at the same time, people must turn to you and ask you, what do you think? Was uh, was the culture at the time anything wrong? Was it visible to you, anything? Uh, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you said not really, uh, given um, uh, you know where you were in the organization. And, and uh, But what would you share with us? And again, I, I have to believe you've been asked this, especially at the time, uh, some of the problems came to the headlines. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just to, to reiterate, the, the problems happened, uh, you know, the whole thing blew up about two or three years after I left. It was only two and not too two, far. Not too far. Okay. Just, yeah, okay. not too far after I left. Um, and you were, I, and, and let me just point that out because I think you went back for your MBA. If that's the case, maybe in your MBA class they were turning to you and asking you, <laughs> please, uh, she share with us what was uh, wrong with the company. I, I don't know. No, you're absolutely right. You are absolutely right. It, ha- it all happened right around the time I was graduating from my MBA program, but I remember picking up the Wall Street Journal one day and seeing the headline, and you know, my heart really sank because I still had a lot of friends that worked at Tyco, and, and they had they had told me along the way, but that things just didn't feel right. And in retrospect, Jack, you know, I was there for a few years. It was a terrific company, high growth, lots, you know, I had a lot of respect for the CEO. But I think that it was the a situation where in some ways, and you hear this, where someone just becomes, you know, Greed is an easy word, but almost feels like they cannot be touched. You know, Dennis Kozlowski was on the cover of every business magazine as, you know, as the next Jack Welch. Um, the company was this, you know, superstar company. The stock was surging. And unfortunately, I think that the people at Tyco were great people. And I've seen, I was in situations where there were things that went wrong, and the tone at the top was, we don't want to recover the money. We want to make sure that person is put in jail and that, that they are made an example of. And this company won't allow that. And that came from Dennis. And I was there when some of that happened. Like it happens in any company. There is, you know, instances where there will be fraud or malfeasance at the, you know, at some level. And they took a very hard line. And the culture was very strong. I think that after a few years, unfortunately, there was a there was just a view of I'm untouchable, and the CFO that Dennis brought in was a young guy at the time named Mark Schwartz, and I think that Dennis probably exerted too much influence over him, and there wasn't a system of checks and balances, 
So it's unfortunate because the company has thrived since then under new leadership, but it never really was the company it was when I was there. And the culture, I've always said this is, you know, they have to be a tone from the top, and the tone was very good when I was there. And I can't speak to what happened after I left. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you uh, for letting us put you on the spot like that. Um, we often ask you uh, this question, what do, you, what do you wish someone had told you at the start of your CFO career? And I think what's interesting about your career, as you illustrated for us, is really um, the role grew with the company. I have to believe your responsibilities continually expanded. Same time, it was perhaps incremental. I, I mean, one year to the next, the responsibilities grew as the company grew. Uh, but there was a day where the weight of finance leadership was on your shoulders. And uh, if only I knew this at that place in time. Does anything come to mind? Uh, I think that if I was to do it all over again, I would say when you are in a small startup company, the initial year or two, you're doing everything, and you learn a tremendous amount. But what I wish we did differently was to say, once you start growing, you still feel like you can do everything. And the reality is you cannot. And you, most people don't have the bandwidth or the skill set to be the CFO, to be the chief accounting officer, to be the acquisitions person. And if I was to give anybody advice, it's, look, you need to focus on what is going to help grow the company, but you need to build a team quickly that can help you grow. And you have to overstaff in the beginning because without that, you just won't be able to grow in a sustainable way. I think we could have grown faster in the beginning had we brought on more people that could have complemented our skill sets. We eventually did it, but we probably had two or three years where we just, you know, the growth was, I wouldn't want to say uncontrolled, but it wasn't the type of growth that you want. The reporting wasn't great. The, the operations weren't great. But you learn from those lessons. And I think that there is this feeling now, nowadays that, hey, I can do everything. I know how to do it. You do. But you can only really focus on a few things every day. And, you know, our CEO told me once, he's like, listen, I don't see a lot of NFL coaches pumping the footballs on the sidelines. Either you're working on the game plan or you're pumping the football, but you don't do both. And it, it went a long way. It's like, yeah, you can't be doing, you know, journal entries or doing something like that and then trying to think of the, the vision of the company as the CFO. And I think that's what I would do differently is to tell people, look, there's only so many hours in the day, you know, get a great team around you and, and that can help you grow. Is there a personal habit or routine that you have that you believe has uh, contributed to your professional success in some way? You know, Jack, it's, um, it may not, may not be direct correlation, but I try to exercise every morning. And one thing I don't do is I don't pick up my phone and I don't check emails until I'm done with that. You know, as you get into this and you, you, you get into your late 40s and 50s, you realize that it's constant. You can be on email all day long. 
but if you don't take care of your health and you're not thinking clearly, it, it doesn't really do you any good. So my habit is that, you know, there's really very little that happens early in the morning that, you know, I can't do something for myself and clear my head, and then I'm working for the next, you know, however many hours it takes. But it's been very helpful for me, and, you know, I would say 99% of the time, I'll look at the phone, and unless there's a voicemail from someone that's, you know, important in the company, um, I won't I won't check anything, and I'll, I'll do what I need to. And it's helped me a lot just to be able to focus and to sort of maintain my, you know, physical health, which is very important to your ability to perform at a high level. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? Um, I think that, you know, a book that I read recently that I thought was very interesting was Zero to One by Peter Thiel. And it's really about how to think about the world as a startup. But, you know, this is, it can really be a, a book that can cross over to anyone in any field and certainly for finance professionals that are looking to join a startup, that are looking to do a startup, um, and to, you know, how to go from that kind of place of where there is nothing to really, you know, growing your organization. Okay, we're up to our final question, where we ask you to look forward and tell us, what are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months? You know, over the next 12 months, um, for me, it is continuing to look at our financial reporting system to make sure that we are getting the best data we can to help us make decisions. I think that, the, as I've discussed before, there is a whole new wave of financial reporting systems out there. And for us, we're at that point where we're, as we continue to grow, you know, we're looking at our financial reporting systems and saying what worked five years ago probably won't work five years from now if, as we continue to grow. So what is the best system that we can put in place, which is going to take 12 months or 24 months to ensure that we can Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.